This is the Straight Dope, episode 12, The Reverent Iconoclast. A friend of mine told me that I don't speak the way I normally do in a conversation on this podcast and that I might want to try bringing my cadence of normal talk to this and see how people like it versus more of a lecture speak, slowing down, allowing people to write things. So I'm going to try my best to speed up the cadence and uh, some feedback would be great because I'm here alone under my climbing wall in the basement. So let's get started with this episode 12. Shooters tend to be reverent. And what I mean by reverent is they have a respect for and fall back on the fundamentals. The fundamentals that we tend to hear about include body position. That body position to one form or another discusses your NPA, natural point of aim. Then fundamentalists tend to go on to discuss bone support, your connection to the rifle, firing hand grip, and influences, like I mentioned in some of the first few chapters, the influences that we have on the rifle system because as soon as the shot fires, there are equal and opposite reactions off of every surface that's touching it. And so you can say that position includes so many things that it's an easy cop-out, but you tend not to find shooters or instructors that are really able to dig down and diagnose what's the problem. Oh, it's something wrong with your position. So work your position and you'll hit the shot. The scope, you want to have a sight picture. You want to make sure that your elevation is correct. You've got your parallax wiggled out. And remember, parallax isn't going to be an issue past 300 yards or so like it will be inside of 300 yards. So I have mentioned parallax being an important issue for paper shooting because if you, you can have glass that's really so clear that it's hard to tell if you have parallax if you don't do the head wiggle. But you can definitely have about an inch of deviation at 100 yards with really shitty parallax adjustments. You want to have sight picture with... Um, that includes what I was told to do, which is when you set your eye relief, make sure that there's a little bit of scope shadow and that it's even on all sides. And that way, if you've got even scope shadow on all sides, even if there's parallax, if your reticle's in the center, you can... Uh, take some of that error out with that and then you you focus and shoot but again that's so general that it's really difficult to put your finger on it and I think you know it's also a really good way to keep people coming back because they say oh well I still suck at shooting well how many times you have to go back to somebody before you figure out they're not teaching you to shoot any better right breath that's a little contentious with me because I've been studying shooters and disciplines where marksmanship standards are a lot higher than field shooting and precision rifle style shooting. And they're doing it with their breath. Uh, But I'm going to talk about that at the end when I nitpick and do some unsolicited coaching of Phil Vallejo. So stand by for that. And then trigger control, you want to pull your trigger straight back Yanking it to the left and right can certainly influence it, especially if you're shooting offhand. But the way people are shooting now, you could probably have the shittiest trigger control and still shoot just fine. Uh, There's plenty of videos of PRS shooters getting trophies in first place, just flicking their little booger flickers 
on those triggers, punching out good groups. And so that really depends on how you're shooting and the weight of your equipment and how much support that you're uh, able to get from that. And then with follow through, um, you know, follow through is more of a psychological element because you can kind of get ahead of it, but we're going to turn around and do psychology there uh, at the end when I assess Phil Vallejo and then try to tie back some of these reverent ideas with the iconoclastic perspective. And I think that's, that's really important because when I think about shooting, I think, okay, you need a good foundation with the fundamentals, but, but you've got to look beyond the fundamentals towards the goals that you're going for and decide how they're going to apply towards that specific goal. And without thinking beyond those kind of strict definitions, I think you run into some trouble. And that's where people, in my opinion, get lost on the internet. And they get lost asking questions or saying, yeah, I get it. I can recite the fundamentals. I can tell you all about them, but I'm still not getting what I want done. I need more help. And then you get this vicious cycle of, let's just keep working on it. But how long are you going to work on something and get the same result, right? You don't, I mean, that's crazy, right? That's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And so I think we need to be expecting results that we want and doing whatever the fuck it takes to get those results, regardless of the fundamentals. And if we align them correctly, you can have successes and you can reach goals without self-defined limits. And I tend to feel like people that are strict fundamentalists create walls and define their own limits rather than saying nothing is impossible. Let's pick the parts that work and build something that the people that design these fundamentals couldn't have even imagined possible, right? Because they weren't shooting rifles that were as good as the ones we're using. To me, that all starts with rifle craft. Go shoot your paper and assess where you're at. Without doing that, there's really no way that we're going to be able to move forward at all. Regardless of your group size, we need to know where you're at today and what you need to do to bring the group size smaller and your understanding of marksmanship and external ballistics towards the goal that you have tons of shooters love shooting and tons of shooters go out and hunt and do a lot of successful things and they might have a pretty big craft number and they might have pretty poor fundamentals but they're good enough to accomplish the goals that they're going after and I know it kind of sucks to say well you got to pick your goal and work towards it but that's absolutely true if you're sitting in a stand and you're taking a 200-yard shot at a pig that there's a feeder 200 yards from your stand and you know exactly the distance, you know exactly the direction, the location, and the time, we can rule out a lot of things that you're going to need to be able to take a better, faster shot on those, those pigs. And plenty of people hunt that way. And some people go up in the mountains they're still taking close shots. Some people take farther shots, but knowing the terrain that you're going to be able to be hunting in 
tells us a lot about the things that you need to work on, which is why when, when I think about goals and I think about the idea of coaching somebody towards those specific goals, you need to make a list of all the things that can go wrong and then break those apart. So to do that, I'm basically just going to take a video assessment of Phil Vallejo. In order for you to follow along, I need you to go to YouTube and look up Phil Vallejo. There's, there's no H in his last name. And Google NRL Hunter Stage Review 1. And there's a video. And, and he did a couple things that were really spectacular. One, he carried an extra tripod with a GoPro attached through the match and filmed himself on every stage. And this is the one that's posted on YouTube. So I just decided to go through it. Phil is a highly accomplished shooter and his goals and the things that he's been interested in have been changing over the years. So he has been a champion and he has performed at the highest level in competition, but he's been working on making fantastic videos, instructing, creating a business, raising a daughter, doing a lot of things. And, and his interest in competing has slipped a little bit. So I think it's very easy to judge somebody based on scores that are posted or something like he didn't compete enough and he got put in as like, a, um, you know, some bullshit classification cause he didn't compete enough like amateur semi pro or you know, something garbage. Right. Uh, because he wasn't competing as much. And, and then he decided to come film himself at the Hunter matches for his students, which I think, says a lot about his character and the fact that he's a diverse shooter with a lot of interest. So this stage, uh, I'll say it right off the bat, he, he, he does great. He doesn't miss a shot. He does a lot of things. I'm going to be critical because I'll be critical of anybody. And anybody that wants to be better can handle input. And whether the input's correct or not, you know, this is how we identify the, the processes that we need to look at with the lens of fundamentals, but also with the lens of what's the acceptable error and performance level that we need to accomplish the specific goals at hand. And I'll tell you right now that at the end of it, it's going to be more psychological than anything. And a lot of these skills are going to be dry fire. But for you to follow along, the best thing for you to do would be to go watch that video before you listen to my analysis, because when I go through it, I don't listen to anything he says, because I don't care about the things that he says in his video. I'm looking for the juiceable stuff. And for me, what's juiceable are all of the things that aren't said. And so if I sit down with a video and I'm trying to provide input to somebody, regardless of what it is, it could be somebody swimming or climbing. It could be just watching like those stupid combat react videos. It could be anything, right? Self-defense. It could be, but something that's, that's ideally, you know, a, a real footage of something happening. And I'll have a perspective often that's a little bit different. And those different perspectives tend to be highly coachable things that can offer insight in you know in a in a way that 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 in the past has helped help people and whether it helps them or not is open to the reception. So I want you to watch that and take some notes of what he does good, what you like about it, and then compare that to the notes that 
I'm going to run through here. And I put some timestamps on the paper and see if any of this is something that you could do for yourself and your friends. Or if you'd like me to do more, that would be cool. But um, I'm going to do this for Phil because I think it'll be fun. And it sheds a new light on what I think is beyond the fundamentals and helps people achieve the goals that they're going to try to go after, right? It starts with the craft number, and then it takes a look at how you respond to realistic scenarios in an unprepared way. I'm not interested in rehearsed choreographed stuff, so I don't, I don't watch that because I tend to think that in the real world, we don't do choreographed things, and a lot of sport becomes choreographed, which is great, but that's not the realm that I... Am, am interested in this podcast is really about you know things that I'm interested in and you guys listen because I don't know you're curious so let's get started first I skip everything for two minutes and 54 seconds and go to the beginning of the stage the beginning of the stage is a four minute countdown because the stage lasts four minutes and in this stage there's uh, one target for position. So it tends to be one of the easier versions of an NRL hunter. I think the harder one is four targets because you got to find four targets versus one. But I'm going to go through, and this is my initial impression. I didn't watch this a hundred times. I just went through it once and I said, okay, this stands out when I watch this. And I've done this with other videos of Phil. And when he reached out to me as a as a new competitive shooter, he said, you know, reach out anytime. And usually when I reach out, it's about a video of his. And I ask him, you know, why didn't you do this one way? Why didn't you do this? And, and a lot of times he has a, an idea and a reason. And most of the time, you know, my initial question changes after his response because I like to know that people have reasons for doing stuff. So the timer starts, four minutes, and it takes him seven seconds to get to the position. Now, in a, at a hunter match, Sometimes it might take you 30 seconds to get from the start to the to the shooting the stake where you where you locate target in Utah they were incredibly short uh, but the idea here at these hunter matches is for the stage to be blind and so regardless of you know they're not trying to make a physical event they're trying to make something where you can't see anything until you start and in this case he, it took him seven seconds to get there, which is great because he didn't have to move very far, and, and that's going to be important when we start discussing what happens at the end of it. Then he starts screwing with his tripod legs, and, and this is that caught me off guard because I remember a few years ago he was saying that his match, everything was going to be deployed on the clock, and you had to be quick with your tripod legs, and so people were doing challenges. Nico Detour was posting videos of sub 30 second deployment shot breaking stuff. But in this case, it, it takes Phil 27 seconds to manipulate his tripod to a position where then he's able to like do anything with it. So he fiddles with the legs for 27 seconds. Now I would say that that was an oversight thinking, okay, I got this. I don't need to practice it. So I, I, if I was going to make a guess and ask Phil and I could be totally wrong, I would say that recently he hasn't been doing from the pack, deploy your tripod, like I challenged listeners to do several episodes ago. Uh, it shouldn't take you 27 seconds to get your tripod legs adjusted so that then you could start glassing, right? 27 seconds, realistically, you should already have your first shot off if you know where the target is. He doesn't know where the target is, but that identifies 
um, a lapse in training where he's 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 trained and he's familiar with it. He's just not current, and so his body's not operating on a tempo that he should be operating on because uh, that that seems a little bit slow to me. So I would say that you know if I was his coach, I would say that a few times a week we need to practice unusual terrain leg deployment to a standard either to have your glass connected or to have the rifle connected and break a shot, but it has to be on uneven ground so that, you know, you're going to adjust the legs, not just open them up, not just, you know, extend them to a specific distance. But if the ground's uneven, they won't be even deployment of those legs. And realistically, I think that that's the 27 seconds is about the time that you'd want to be able to break a first shot. And so I would say that for getting your glass attached, 20 seconds is probably more realistic. And somebody of his caliber should be getting his binos and scope around 20 seconds. Then he finds the target incredibly fast, which is great. And then um, he screws around a little bit uh, for 50 seconds. And by the time... Two minutes and 10 seconds elapses, which is basically 50 seconds after he ranged it, is when he should be taking that first shot. But he realizes that he lost the sight picture, right? And he kicks into what I'm just going to call the OODA loop. And if you don't know what that is, but he basically, he, he was skilled and trained enough to know that he needed to follow a procedure. And that's the whole idea of this video review is that when, when lack of a better word, when panic sets in, you have to have a procedure in place that you know you can fall back on and fix the problem as quickly as possible. So he gets there, he should be breaking his shot at 210, but the OODA loop kicks in about 20 seconds later and it takes him another 50 seconds to find it and get back there. So he's taking his first shot at 120, right? 120 left, right? 80 seconds left on the clock in a four-minute stage. And, and so what I'm going to say now is that it's very easy to go to these matches and have things like this happen. And that's the whole beauty of the hunter match is that there are times where it's not straightforward and you have to kick back into those OODA loops. You have to fall back on those programs that you've instilled from training that when things go wrong, you can fix them. Right, Just like if you're walking and your shoe comes untied, you know you tie your shoe and keep walking. But some people get caught up in these, and um, I'm guilty of having something go wrong and timing out, looking for targets, not realizing that I should have initiated a response that gave up a few points but shot them. And I want to credit his extensive years of training in diverse scenarios to no, I need to go kick into these loops. And he fixed it. He fixed it with 80 seconds on the clock left. And to take four shots in 80 seconds isn't that big a deal. It's 20-second building breaks, which for somebody of Phil's level isn't a big deal. But something happened at that point that kicked on 
a physiological response that I want to point out because these things are manageable. And if I was Phil's coach, I would be working on the physiopsychology of his developed stress response because I think he's got a training scar from his years of shooting that is manifesting itself. And even though it didn't hurt him here, for him to progress forward, he's going to have to erase those, and those become visible those last 80 seconds where his respiratory rate kicks up, and you can hear him breathing, and he's and he starts to fumble around. Now, when the video was posted, he, he said, excuse my breathing, I must be out of shape, and, and I'm going to say, uh, you know, I'm not a physician, but physiologically you can separate the metabolic and homeostatic breathing and emotional breathing. So there's behavioral breathing that can take place. And you see it in all sorts of animals. And in humans, you have the same thing. When anxiety kicks in, there's a behavioral breathing pattern that's thought to be kind of an evolutionary strategy to A, increase your your oxygen, because we don't do things without oxygen. But evolutionarily, we have a lot of responses that are kind of unusual because this day and age, a lot of things are pretty easy and we're not exposed to the stresses that we may have had when these were developing. One of the things that it's also linked to is increased olfactory because when you, you smell when you're breathing. And so when, when you're stressed, you know, if you've been hunting or you've been out in the woods or you've been some, you know, or, or um, you know, a- anywhere, right? You hear stories of the Mac V. Sog guys when they were out in the jungle, they could, they could smell people because people have a distinct odor and animals have a distinct odor. And so this emotional breathing, when anxiety kicks in, your respiratory rate kicks up, your olfactory senses get a boost also from that respiratory rate. It's a stress response. And that stress response kicked in because he knew he was running out of time. And a beginner wouldn't do that. And and that's why I'm going to call this a training scar because as uh, you know, former military sniper, then competitor, and then instructor. He, there are a lot of instances now that he subconsciously is aware that when time starts running out, performance is going to suffer, negative consequences are going to come. And it kicked in uh, this res- response where his breath rate started to kick up. Well, when you have a stress response, your fine motor control starts to go, and you can see it in his reticle wobble. He's got about four-tenths of wobble, and I know that's unusual for him, but it's not respiratory wobble uh, because that would be vertical. Um, it's a, it's an emotional response, and these targets are pretty big, but um, you can see that starting to affect his ability to make good decisions and he falls back on fundamentals. And you see that he falls back on his fundamentals because when he breaks the shot, the reticle barely moves, right? And it sounds like he's out of breath, but really it's, it's a, a training scar that needs to be dealt with right away. And the way that it's dealt with, you can see he has effective patterns throughout up until that point. But after that point, they kind of fall apart. Um, Moving and creating uh, small behavioral patterns, like um, when I set my rifle down, it's not going to be two steps away. When I put 
my rifle, you know, I'm going to do things very mechanically at first, and you're going to be kind of mechanical about the components. So if we go back to the beginning of the video, we can break it into, into these checklists, like deal with the legs, attach the rangefinder, record that, record the, the target distances, direction, and um, uh, visual reference points. And then we can say, all right, well, if, if it takes 16 seconds to adjust the tripod and equip the, equip the glass takes seven seconds, let's take those seven seconds and break it down and find where our lost time is. When you open the tripod and put the bag and the rifle on, the bag, on, on it, is there a way to compensate for that stress response in the, in the wobble I think that's where training and doing something that, that, that kicks in that response where he gets the four-tenths wobble, and then we find out how do we adjust that. You could say, well, he needs to work on his fundamentals. His fundamentals are great. It's that when you fight your physiological responses, uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems. You need to kind of work with them. And the way that he holds the bag with his left hand doesn't work when those reactions are taking place because his respiratory rate is high and it's not something that he'll be able to control uh, the same way that you would on a flat range in a class where the instructor says, okay, on the respiratory pause, everybody start that 90-degree trigger pull, and wow, you guys are all great marksmen because that, that's not reality, right? The reality is he's filming himself, he puts himself under self-perceived pressure, and that pressure now is coming back and those small things that you can do to eliminate those require stress and they require filming yourself to see what those reactions are and without simulated realistic kind of unprepared for scenarios like a match like this you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to identify those and really work on them and so it takes balls to put a video of yourself shooting and I'm point out again He's not just shooting the match. He's carrying around an extra camera and an extra tripod, and he didn't miss the targets. He's doing everything correct, but yet nobody's perfect. And you could see here that he's got room to grow and expand his own skills, but where he's at with his skills is needing to deconstruct a few of the scars that are now starting to show themselves. And you can only see them in circumstances like this, all of you, if you did the same thing, we would be able to go through and say, all right, you know, let's break this down into a pattern. You need to mechanically adjust your tripod. You need to mechanically know where your glass is, attach it, range, record, put it back. Mechanically reach down, grab your rifle. Don't put it two steps away. Have it so that you don't need to move. We can cut seconds out of almost every cycle and repetition on this and his is ironed out, right? For someone else, it would cause them to, 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 to time out. And I think the value of recording yourself and seeing those stress responses and then ask yourself, well, what's the goal and the outcome that we're looking for? And, you know, what things won't we be able to control as much as mitigate? And then we mitigate the things that we can and we shoot paper targets, we measure those groups, we assess them and log them, 
and then determine, is this good enough for the application? If yes, great. If not, you know, then we keep, we keep kind of cycling back towards being effective for the desired outcome. To me, this is all really exciting because I'm really not impressed at all with rehearsed kind of choreographed shooting, but an unknown stage with unknown um, stressors exposes the things that we can work on to be better as a whole, and that will carry forward, and those lessons learned will be applicable, but they're not, oh, I did this, so you need to do this. Rather, they're, this happened to me, now I'm going to work on decoupling my perception and my outcome-based expectations so that we can produce a series of small procedures that we can fall back on and adapt to the scenario. And in this case, you know, we have to decouple breath in the traditional sense and say, well, in this scenario, just like uh, an Olympic biathlon shooter with a heart rate of 180, which you know most listeners probably can't even get their heart rate to 180, but getting it to 180 and shooting, there's no way that you're shooting on a respiratory pause in a normal context, right? You need to come up with a way to deal with it by augmenting your physiology and your anatomy such that you're able to have you know good enough shooting, right? They're shooting like, I don't know, Three, three MOA, what is it? Two inches at 50 yards, so a four MOA plate. But a four MOA plate under that kind of physiological strain is, is very hard to do. But they're doing it by inducing massive diaphragmatic breathing and so that their chest doesn't rise and fall. Um, Phil anchors it midline, and so when he's breathing, you know, his clavicle is not moving as much as other parts of his body, but we could augment it by introducing diaphragmatic breathing, by introducing a new anchor for his support hand, and, um, and also being aware or coming up with a check for visual indications, because it's not always easy in the moment for you to self-identify that those physiological responses are happening. And I'm sure that if you asked him after the stage, he wouldn't know that his respiratory rate was high. He wouldn't know that he had, you know, a big wobble. He might think that it was wind or, you know, or, or something. But in the moment, it's very hard to, to self-identify that stuff. But you create those checks, just like jumping out of an airplane. You know, you if your chute doesn't work, you want to have procedures that you don't really need to think too much about. You do them, and then, you know, you carry on with life. Versus like, oh shit, what am I going to do? And you pull out your phone while you're falling and Google, what should I do? And you panic and you start thinking about things that aren't relevant in the moment. And that's probably not a good way to go about it because you don't tend to think clearly when panic sets in in reality, which I think is really interesting. And other examples of that being an evolutionary um, response, we can see kind of the flip side of that uh, in some things that we do like... Um, you know, most people, if they see a snake, have a certain physiological response. You know, I studied biological toxins for, for many, many years and went out and collected, you know, lots of poisonous things. And, you know, I still, if I see a rattlesnake, you know, I'm not 
just willy nilly about it. Like I know how to approach it or a sea snake or, or something like that. You know, but you, you definitely are aware that this thing could be dangerous and you get the feeling that the way that you feel isn't something you learned. It's something that, that you were born with a certain amount of fear, but we weren't born driving cars. And so I think the, a good example that I heard once was, you know, the reason it's, it's, you know, incredibly dangerous to, to text and drive is that we don't have evolutionary kind of speed bumps in our behavior. We're not afraid of it. Like, cause we didn't evolve going fast and looking at a screen. We don't, we don't have those checks and balances, but we do for a lot of other things. Problem is, you know, we're doing these activities like shooting and competing and we didn't involve doing that either. But when you've identified, Oh shit, it's not good. If I time out, you know, bad things are going to happen. And you've got a history of training in, in life and death scenarios or training, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be the best competitor. You start to, to, to instill those roadblocks, psychological roadblocks that will kick in those evolutionary stress responses. And, and those are training scars that are easy to identify as an outsider, like a coach, but very hard to self-identify. And that's why I think that although we pay attention to fundamentals, it's not nearly enough to get you to the top of a new game or an unknown game. You know, if we're just reciting, you know, I mean, you know, in reality, if, 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 if you're a hunter that sits in a stand and shoots at a feeder that's 300 yards away, you know, it's an awful lot like doing the PRS barricade that you, you know exactly what to expect. So you train that exact scenario and you get really good at it. And, and as a result, people are very good at that. Right? They're very, very good because they know what to expect. There's not a lot of surprise. And, but on the flip side, when you're training for the unknown, there's a lot of doors that open for those emotional hiccups and speed bumps, which is why it's, it, it, it's not uncommon at, at team events and other events to throw in these things that, that kick in emotional responses where you have to communicate with a partner because communication is one of the first things to break down when emotions start kicking up and people start getting confused. And, and so if we can identify those, though, we can create games and we can create uh, um, procedures that you can follow even when you're not thinking uh, all that clearly such that you're able to respond in an effective way and not lose the stage. So rewatch that and look for those small things that can be broken into individual procedures, the individual procedures in that stage. Now you don't want to train for the test. I've seen that work very poorly for people like at the sniper adventure challenge, uh, they say, well, last year they did this, so we trained that all year. Well, shit, they're not going to do the same thing next year. They're going to do it different every year. So the one thing that you know is don't train for what they did last year. Train to have a lot of procedures and checks and balances, but definitely don't fall back on the expected because um, you know that's, that's not how the world works, and we don't want to be caught doing the same thing because that's very easy to fight. And it's very easy to come up with a scenario that'll throw somebody off if you know exactly what they do, right? So the reverence to position, scope, breath, trigger, follow through should be there, right? We, we understand that, that in general, 
those are components. The iconoclast side of this is you need to think beyond them, right? People that just do that stay the same. That's why there's so many mid-pack shooters. They're not thinking beyond it. Beyond it is shoot your craft number, simulate unknown and unprepared for stages, film yourself, observe them, and then create new spinoffs of if this happens, how do I fix it and get back? And if this happens and you practice them until you can offload the mental um, bandwidth so that you can carry out all those procedures under the radar while you're still paying attention. And we mentioned that the, the prior episodes of the nonverbal communication in, uh, you know, in the, in, in the darts throwing saying that you could predict who was going to win or be a top performer before they shot the stage because they've gone through all those procedures. They know how their body feels. They know the, the proprioceptive feeling of doing something. If something goes wrong in most of those scenarios, they fix it. They get back to business. They're not worried about anything other than accomplishing the goal. And you minimize and mitigate fear when you're prepared. And when you're prepared, that sense of calm, you know, it's almost like a sense, like a Zen moment where everything that's been thrown at you in training, you can handle and get back to business. You need to be able to have anything thrown at you from the left and the right and still be aware enough for more unexpected scenarios, right? That's where you see truly skilled shooters rise to the top. And Phil's one of the truly skilled shooters out there because he can adapt and yet he's still got room to grow, which means that he's going to be one of the greats if he puts himself out there and continues to do these unknown and expand your skill type um, events in addition to all the other stuff that he's doing. So always think ahead and always think of new ways to deal with the hiccups, not by training for the old test, but in general, how do I deal with scenarios when any of this stuff goes wrong and get back in the fight? That is going to take your skill and raise it to the next level. And if you film yourself in training, every little thing, come up with a procedure and a fix so it doesn't happen again. But if something happens, follow it all the way through, right? If you drop your tripod, pick it up and continue the stage or continue the shooting all the way through. You don't want to stop and give up halfway. You, you, you can't become reliant on everything has to work right for this to work. Because in reality, nothing ever totally goes right for it to work. So you need to be able to work through all of those kinks and hiccups. And if you've worked through an infinite amount of kinks and hiccups along the way, when it comes time to game day, nothing's going to throw you off. And you'll have that confident, neutral body psychology and physiology such that nothing is going to throw you off and you'll be unbeatable. That's where the golden nuggets are with the top, top performers, right? They're, they're calm because they understand the bigger context, not just reciting the gospel. Anyway, uh, I'd be curious to see if the 
tempo and the thought pattern of a conversation that I'm having with myself uh, was something that you liked. And if you, if you like the old style, let me know. If you like this style, let me know, and um, we'll keep things going. If you really want to support the podcast, go to RifleCraft.com, log your targets, because that's cool, and share the podcast and tell your friends about it. We're not, we're not advertising, but we're breaking the 2,000 listener unique listener mark, and that's only after a few weeks, so I think we're off to a really good start. If you want to support it even more than that, then subscribe to RifleCraft for the cost of a couple drinks per month. Uh, you can keep this project going and support the RifleCraft website, which takes manpower and time. And um, if you don't like it, thanks for listening. <laughs>